Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're in a warm place on a cold night. We do pray, Father, that the minor technical issues that are holding back our website would get addressed today. And Father, let the, let the teaching continue to flow. We ask, Father, that our time tonight would add to that library of teaching in a valuable way, in a meaningful way, things that people need to know, Father, as you have appointed. Uh, we are particularly interested, Father, in understanding the role of Israel and, for that matter, our own place in all that you're doing. It's um, far more personal to us when we understand what you're accomplishing and not merely studying about distant things, distant facts, figures, events, and the like. So I pray, Father, you would make these things even more personal to us, showing us how you want us to use what we learn tonight, guiding us in how we might share it, helping us to live more in the hope of what we know is coming. We ask these things, Father, confident that you'll reveal yourself to us tonight in the truth of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we usually do, let's rejoin our study uh, with a short review and looking at the big picture. This is a slide we'll continue to build on. We'll just, this is sort of our uh, going away slide from the first part of the study and moves us now into a new part. And with regard to the outline of the book of Revelation, we're moving into part three, the things that come after the church age. You remember we've been studying how the church age, that bubble in the picture, fits into a larger timeline of Daniel and what Daniel taught us about the age of the Gentiles. And last time we were here, we kind of focused on the end of that for the first time. We started looking at that little section at the end that's called the 70th or the last seven of Daniel's 77s, also known as the Day of the Lord, or as we've come to know it, Tribulation seven-year period that still remains to finish out this age. It's a period designated for Israel's troubles, or Jacob's troubles, as Jeremiah said, and it's a response to their failure to keep the Old Covenant, something we'll talk more about tonight. And as such, its primary purpose is to bring Israel back into obedience to the covenant and into holiness with their God who will save them at the end of it. Now, you can clearly see how the Lord works to use the Old Covenant and the experiences of Israel during the time of the age of the Gentiles. You can see how God is using all of that for the benefit of his people in one little interesting place in the Old Testament. This is a, a bit of a sidebar just to kind of finish off what we've done and move us forward. It comes out of Leviticus chapter 26, 25 and 26. Let me show you something about Leviticus you may have missed. In chapter 25, and I'm summarizing these chapters very briefly, Israel is told first that they must observe a land Sabbath. That's the once every seven year period in which the land is to rest. And then later in that chapter, they're also told that if somebody should be dispossessed of their land, they sell it, they have to give it up because of poverty, etc. Then after 49 years, those who have been dispossessed of their land in Israel must receive it back from whoever has it at that time. Do you know, by the way, in the nation of Israel today, even though they're not, generally speaking, a religious nation from the standpoint of their governing, they're not governed from a religious point of view necessarily, uh, nevertheless, you cannot own land in Israel. All land is owned by the government, and after 99 years, it reverts back to the government. I think it's probably built on this pattern. Anyway, that's what you find in Leviticus 25. Interestingly, if you look at Leviticus 26, which we will do quite a bit tonight, 
You find in Leviticus 26 two things. First, the penalty that Israel will have to pay if they violate the requirement for the land Sabbath. Now remember, they did violate it for quite some time. And the penalty specified in Leviticus 26, long before it happened, is that they would have to be outside the land for 70 years. That's a tenfold penalty. Tenfold penalty on the, on the seventh year requirement. And Leviticus 26 also says, if they do not keep the terms of the old covenant as a nation, that they would be dispossessed of the land of Israel for 490 years, then they could have the land again. Again, a tenfold penalty on the requirement that's given in Leviticus 25. So in Leviticus 25 and 26, you see this expectation that God is gonna merit out these penalties because he's already lining them out. And so they spent, as you remember from this slide, they spent 10 sevens, 70 years, in Babylon. That was the fulfillment of Leviticus 26 with regard to the land Sabbath. Then that was followed immediately by 490 years, which is what's required because of the failure to keep the old covenant, not counting, of course, the pause that took place and is still going on. So Israel's failure to keep the old covenant means that they will be oppressed in their land and outside their land for many years. And Daniel 9 gave us the, di- the timeline for all of these events. And in Leviticus 26, you get this great summary, and this will be the launch point for tonight. In Leviticus 26, notice it says, the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. There's your 10 sevens. Meanwhile, that is to say, in addition, they will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. There's your 490, okay? So the age of the Gentiles and the final seven, which is our main focus for the you know, remainder of this study for quite some time, for the main part of the study, that seven-year period we call tribulation, that entire event is all a part of how God is dealing with Israel for their failures under the old covenant. Another way to say it is, why does tribulation happen? Answer, because of the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the instrument of God that requires, among other things, the seven years that we still wait for, all right? And if you put that perspective on the table for a moment, then you have a much clearer understanding for why I say that the church, for example, is not a part of this period of history. We are not parties to the old covenant. And as such, we're not bound by it. And nor are we subject to it, to its penalties or any other part of it. And so as it comes upon the earth, it does not come upon us. Why? Because it's not for us. And God is not capricious. Things don't just happen because they happen. He has a reason and a purpose, an audience and an outcome. And he works accordingly. So let's put this perspective in another, another view. That's the finishing of what I just said. Let's put this in another point of view. Here's your outline of chapter, chapters uh, 1 through 22 of Revelation again. Things John saw, things that are, and now the things we care, we, we're going to focus on, the things that happen after the church age, or as we now know it to be, the time of tribulation. Now, chapters 1 through 3 covered the church period, that is, the things he saw and the things that are, but that we found was part of a larger period of history called the age of the Gentiles, Right? Chapters four and five, which is where we're parked right now, explains how you leave the times that are and move into the times that will follow. And we began that last week looking at chapter four, John seeing the throne room, and from all that we studied last week, we concluded that 
The promised removal of the church from earth had taken place as we got into chapter 4 because of all the evidence that was provided to us in that chapter. The church in heaven, having received new bodies at the resurrection, having received their crowns, which cannot happen except at the resurrection. And as we studied last week, there is no time for one person to be resurrected or to receive their rewards. The Bible says all of us receive it at the same time. So all the church was in heaven at the coming of the Lord, as promised in John 14. We also noticed how that was a very different moment than the one that's promised concerning Christ's second coming. So the one that we saw last week was the church in heaven, not Jesus on earth. That's the moment of the resurrection, John 14. What we see at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19 is the coming return of Christ, and guess who's with him when he comes back? We are. Clearly, we had to leave first before we could come back. So we return with him in chapter 19. So we've come to calling that first moment, the green arrow, the rapture. You can call it whatever you want, but what the Bible calls it is the resurrection, the, the coming of the Lord for the church. And it comes before tribulation because, as Paul said, it is a time of wrath. Tribulation is a time of wrath that comes upon the whole earth, and yet he also says the church will not experience it. If it comes on the whole earth, and yet we don't experience it, we've got to be off the earth. And chapter 4 is given to us in the book of Revelation, among the other chapters we studied last week, to make clear to the reader, you've moved on. You're no longer in the times that are. You're in the things that follow. The church is no longer. It's been moved into the heavenly realm because of the coming of the Lord. Now new things are about to start. And yet, here again, the age of the Gentiles continues on. It has not ended yet. If you were to jump to the end of uh, chapter 19 and you look at the description of Jesus' physical return, That's the moment we know that from Daniel marks the end of the age. So if you look at the chapters that we're studying in the book of Revelation, here's what you find. Chapters 6 through 18 are effectively the chapters that talk about the seven-year tribulation. Because I've already established 19 is where you see us coming back with Jesus. That sets the end of the age right there. The rock from heaven that destroys the statue, etc., And we've looked at chapter 4, we'll look at 5 tonight. Those are the chapters that deal with the transition out of the age of the the church and into the time of tribulation. They don't actually talk about anything going on in tribulation as such, so that doesn't start till chapter 6. So 6 through 18 is is the part of the book of Revelation devoted to the 70th 7 of Daniel. That's a lot of chapters, about seven years. And it shows you the importance of that period of history. Okay, we're gonna dive into that. But let's first do two things. Let's take a brief look at the end of chapter four because there was a couple things I wanted to mention that we didn't do last week, and then we'll go to chapter five. All right, so let's go to chapter four, verse five. I'm not doing the the whole of what's left. We're just gonna do a little passage out of four that I wanted to take a brief look at. Verse five, it says, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now I read those last week, but we didn't really look at them. So for the purpose of tonight, let's just focus on one interesting connection between this moment and something you find in the book of Ezekiel. 
The four creatures that are around the throne here are cherubim. Cherubim are the highest order of angelic beings. There's three orders. Cherubim, seraphim, and then just regular old angels. And cherubim have as their primary purpose, if not their only purpose, guarding the glory of God. Every time we see them in the Bible, that's what they're doing, protecting or guarding the glory of God. The last time we saw them before this moment, the last time you see them in the Bible before this is Ezekiel 10. And in Ezekiel 10, that's where the cherubim, uh, in my teaching on that chapter, I refer to them as Apache helicopter cherubim because they basically come in on a rescue mission, land in the temple court, and escort the glory of God out in a rescue mission right before the Babylonian army shows up to attack the temple. And this is God's way of moving his glory out of the way before Nebuchadnezzar comes in to destroy the temple as appointed. So think about this. The moment the glory of God left his temple, never to have returned since, was as the age of the Gentiles began. So the glory of God does not dwell with his people Israel from the time of the beginning of the age of the Gentiles until it returns at Christ's second coming and occupies the new temple of the kingdom, the end of the age of the Gentiles. And never in the meantime between them, apart from Jesus himself appearing in his own day, but in the sense of how it's traditionally been viewed, the Shekinah glory of God, that has not returned to the temple. So Ezekiel 10 takes place at the beginning of the age of the Gentiles, right before Nebuchadnezzar's attack. And chapter four of Revelation now sets us up for the beginning of the last seven years before those cherubim return, as it were, and escort the glory of God back into the temple. And so in a way, you could say that chapter 10 of Ezekiel foreshadowed the beginning of the age of the Gentiles by taking the glory of God away. And this chapter is foreshadowing the return of the glory of God as you see those same characters preparing around the throne, declaring what? The one who was and is and is to come, meaning to come back to dwell among men. So this chapter, in effect, is a preamble to the rest of Revelation which itself tells us how the glory of God gets to come back. But not before he has to do some things on the earth in preparation. And that's where we go next. Next is chapter five. Chapter five completes this transition by talking now about where we're going. As much as chapter four kind of looked at the end of the church and its arrival, now chapter five looks at the beginning of what comes next. That is the beginning of tribulation. Chapter five, verse one. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest 
and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All right, I read it all as one because I think it helps set the scene in your mind a little bit. And obviously chapter five is a continuation of what we studied in chapter four. So you still have John in the throne room of God. I'm gonna back up to show you some of the verses we read so you can see them. Um, the Father is still on the throne. You have the elders. You have the four living creatures. By the way, if you go back and you compare the description of the four living creatures here compared to Ezekiel, they all have four faces. They all have the same four faces. That is, one is a man, one is an eagle, one is an ox, etc. And so John only reports one of those four for each of the ones he saw, which tells you that he only saw one side of each of them. If he had walked around, he could have seen the other three. Anyway, we see those, we see the elders, we see God, and then we wonder about the Spirit. You notice it's not mentioned at this point. The Spirit of God is not mentioned. We'll come back to him in a minute. And then you see a new character, the Lamb. And if there was any doubt as to his identity, he's also called the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. So obviously this is Jesus. And although Jesus was always there, only now does John mention seeing him. And so obviously The focus now shifts. You have all three members of the uh, persons of the Godhead having been mentioned in these two chapters, yet from this point forward in the book of Revelation, not just in this chapter, but through the rest of the book, it's all about Jesus. He becomes the focus. And the chapter opens, as you saw, with the Father on the throne holding a book. The Greek word here for book is biblion, and a biblion in John's day is not the kind of book we have. It's not a, a bound book like this. When you hear the word biblion from that time of history, you're thinking scroll. It is a rolled up parchment that has been written on. And typically, important scrolls, uh, ones that were legal documents, for example, would be sealed on the edge, rolled up and then sealed along its edge so that it could not be opened and it would be sealed shut usually with uh, a wax seal. And in this case, it's affixed with seven of those wax seals. Now here again, the number seven means 100%, so what that would tell us is this is a complete sealing of the scroll, that is, no one has opened it, no one knows its contents. That would be the implication of seven seals, okay? So what is this scroll? Well, the only clue you get as to what it's about is in the description that John gives us concerning the scroll. He says, it has writing on both sides. And in that day, scrolls were usually only written on the inside, not the outside. So think of it unrolled, you write on it, you roll it up, the outside has no writing on it. If you've ever seen a Torah scroll, there's no writing on the outside of a Torah scroll. You have to move it to find the next part you want to read on the inside, okay? But there were certain legal documents that would be written on on the outside as well as on the inside, and particularly land deeds. A document that assigned the land to someone else that sold or or appropriated the land. 
So when land was awarded in Israel from one person to another, a deed would be drawn up that would describe the land, its, its dimensions, the terms of the sale or the use of the land. All of that's written on the inside of that scroll. And then the scroll is sealed and uh, any transfer of property within Israel, as I mentioned already, is temporary at best. 49 years is the most you can own land. In fact, the price of the land would be discounted based on the length of time before the next Jubilee year. So if you bought the land on the 48th year, you didn't pay very much for it because you were only going to keep it two years, and so on. Now, the law required then that after those 49 years, the, the land would revert back to its original owner, no matter what the deed said. But in the meantime, that land deed transferred the land, the ownership of that land, for a time to whoever held the deed. Now, the deed would be sealed so that no one could tamper with it, so that you couldn't go back in later and maybe add a one in front of another letter, so to speak, as we would do, to enlarge the property or make the, lo- the length of time be longer, or if you were the one getting the money, to make the price higher. So in order to make sure no one was tampering with it, they sealed it up. But then the question becomes, what does it say? How do you verify what its contents are if you can't open it? So in order to help someone who might have to inspect the property or to know the terms of the deed, they would write a summary of those terms on the outside of the deed. And if there was ever a doubt raised concerning the authenticity or the accuracy of that summary, then they could take the deed to a magistrate who was authorized, who was a judge and had the authority to make a determination on the matter. And the judge, and only the judge, could break the seals. And in opening the deed, could see the inside and know whether the outside and the inside were, in fact, the same. But once the seals on that deed were broken, the deed is no longer in effect. Now, a new deed would have to be struck in place of the old one because once the seals are broken, you've, you've lost the sanctity of that agreement as it's intended, right? All right, so to say that a scroll contains writing on both the inside and the outside is not just a simple detail John thought he would throw in for, for the sake of it. He was telling us what kind of deed it was. He was saying this is a land deed, which then leads us to ask, well, what's, what's the land? What's this deed for? And the obvious answer, given the purpose of tribulation, is Israel's land, the land of Israel. In 605 BC, the Lord set Israel outside their land when Nebuchadnezzar came and began the age of the Gentiles. And it began a period of Gentile oppression. And he gave the land effectively over to Gentiles to trample it to varying degrees for the last 2,600 years. But in the kingdom, when the age of the Gentiles is complete, that land will be Israel's and Israel's only, according to the promises God has given them. So in the meantime, the land of Israel, you could say, has been deeded to Gentiles. But there is a time coming when that land deed is going to end, when the rightful owners see it, when the 490 years is over, and the jubilee, as it is, comes to effect, and Israel is no longer dispossessed of the land that God gave away for that period of time, that it reverts back to their rightful owner. And that is just as God said would happen when he began this age. In Ezekiel chapter 11, this is at the moment when God is telling Israel their land's about to be given away and that Nebuchadnezzar is about to take it, or the Babylonians anyway. He says in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. So even as he's telling them what terrible things are about to begin for them, he's also telling them that this is not the end of the story, that there is a good ending. So breaking the seals on a land deed was something reserved for a magistrate or a judge who had authority. In the past, you're thinking a local leader, a a local authority, a, a tribal leader in some cases, someone who had that authority for the area under dispute. But who has authority over the whole of Israel? over all the land promised to the people of God. Well, John hears a strong angel in the throne room asking pretty much that same question in verse two, and I'll back up again just so you can see it. He says, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Or to put it another way, he's saying, who is able to end the age of the Gentiles such that the land of Israel would be returned to its rightful owner? That's effectively what he's saying. And at first he says, no one's found. Notice, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And that might seem a little hard to believe when you think about it, because you think, well, wait a minute, the Father's sitting right there, he's on the throne, he's in heaven, he's certainly worthy, is he not? Well, you have to understand what that term means. To be worthy in this context does not mean just to be good enough. I mean, certainly God is good enough. It means to be deserved or appropriate. Remember, God the Father gave Israel's land to the Gentiles in the first place. He's party, if you will, to that land deed. The parties to the land deed can't open it. A judge must open it. And therefore, the father can't break the seals, so to speak, because if the father broke the seals, that's breaking the agreement. So we need someone who's authorized, in that sense, worthy to be the judge. And someone has to be the judge to inspect the terms to end the, the agreement when the time has come to end it. So initially, John is told no one is able to judge this agreement, which God the Father established, And as a result, John is moved to tears. Now you know why he's crying. If you wondered why he got so emotional about this moment, because he understands what a land deed means, and he's got the point that this is the moment we're looking for someone to give Israel back the land that Israel's lost, and there's no one who can do this? It would seem as though Israel has no hope. But there is one who can rightly judge an agreement established by God, so long as he is a qualified mediator. And a mediator would have to be both capable of representing God and capable of representing the earth or man for those are the two parties to this agreement effectively. And notice in verses five and six, John is told there is one, by the, one of these human elders says to him, there is one in heaven, a lamb, who can open this scroll. And Jesus is described there as the lamb. But notice in verse six, he's a lamb standing as if slain. And if that sounds a bit oxymoronic to you, it's because it's actually a turn of phrase. It's an idiom of, of Greek, a figure of speech. It doesn't literally mean standing as if slain. It's a, it's a histomai spatshatso, which in Greek just means resurrection. Okay, so this is a, lamb, a resurrected lamb is what standing as if slain means. All right? So John describes Jesus as the resurrected Lamb of God. Why? Because it is in his resurrection that he qualifies himself to be the judge. 
Notice first he's got seven horns and seven eyes. I told you we were gonna come back to a conversation about the Holy Spirit just for a moment, and here's where you do that. Some have asked, if the Holy Spirit is all present in the heavenly throne room starting in chapter four, which is part of the evidence that we saw to tell us that the church is now off the earth before the start of of tribulation, right? Yet the question then becomes, well, if the Spirit's left the earth, how can any new faith come back to the earth after that? Well, here you see what happens. Jesus is, has seven eyes, seven horns. It's obviously not his normal appearance. It's symbolic. But it's, the, it's done such, or it's given to him in this moment so that it can represent something, which John is told is the Spirit of God. But notice, it's the Spirit of God sent out. Earlier, how was the Spirit of God represented? As present lamps of fire in the, in the throne room, lighting the throne room with the presence of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Now, how do we know the Holy Spirit is still uh, uh, working, or so to speak, or, or present? Well, he's not physically present in this moment, but Jesus, in his connection to the Spirit of God, can see and rule. Horns are a picture of ruling. He can see and rule the earth by his Spirit who has been sent out. So this is our indication that the Holy Spirit is no longer in heaven. He's been, he, he conveyed the church into the place, and he's moved back down to the earth at this point. Anyway, back to the the main thought, Jesus here, worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy, the elder says, because he has overcome. Now, to overcome means to be victorious over something or someone. Jesus himself tells us what it means that he's overcome something. He says in John, we have to go back forward now, John 16, 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And to overcome the world is a way of saying to have defeated the ruler of the world, which John himself clarifies for us in in, uh, 1 John. He says, 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning, and I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So to overcome the world is to overcome the evil one, By our faith in Christ, we join him in that overcoming. He is the overcomer on our behalf. And so Jesus overcoming the devil, and we know how he did this because Hebrews 2.14 says that he took on flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus' death and resurrection, the lamb standing as if slain, overcame the enemy's dominion over the earth. And in so doing, he took away the enemy's only weapon against us, which is death, rendering it null and void. And in that way, he qualified himself, he made himself worthy to judge the world. Acts 10.42 says that God has appointed him as the judge of the living and the dead. So, the father deeded, as it were, Israel's land to the enemy and to the world that the enemy controls, Gentiles particularly. And now, as we reach this point, the judge of the world, by his death and resurrection, has conquered the enemy and has authority now to reclaim, to retake the land that God has deeded away. And he is a mediator of sorts. He has the authority to inspect the terms and to end them by opening the the deed. Now, as he opens it and he inspects the terms, that will require that a new agreement be put in place. 
And certainly at the start of the kingdom, a new agreement will be put in place, a peace covenant between God and Israel, which establishes them and their land without challenge. So this is the ending of one agreement concerning the land to make way for the new one that will come. All right, so that's kind of giving you a little overview here. So the, the, the events that we are following here are the very first moments in which Christ exercises his authority to judge the world. He is the authority now, he has the authority now, he is a judge now, but he is not exercising that authority to its fullest yet. What is he waiting on? Well, specifically, the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, the father to tell him to claim his bride, and then the opportunity following that to then have the, the, the book handed to him. Notice the father holds onto the book until he gives it to the son. Then the son has the authority to open it, all right? But this scroll doesn't have one seal, which would have been more the custom. It has seven. And so opening it is not a moment. Opening it is a process. And as Jesus opens each of the seven seals on this scroll, what we will find happening is certain events play out. And this sets a pattern for that 6 through 18 I talked about, chapters 6 through 18. The chapter is about tribulation. You will find this pattern now in which Jesus does something in heaven, opens a seal, for example, and then John's attention will be directed to the earth where we see the effect of it. It's like remote control. What God does in heaven, of course, controls what happens on earth. And it all starts with the opening of this scroll, which is how chapter six begins. Now, in verses eight through 10, you notice the response to the, oh, Jesus can open the scroll. Well, the response to that is, cherubim break out in a new song of praise, accompanied by, you should note, musical instruments and bowls of incense. I mention this only because they're kind of interesting little footnotes, and they, they can solve an argument, maybe, somewhere in the future. It confirms, first of all, that musical instruments are not of the devil, <laughs> nor are they contrary to, to God's wishes in the context of worship. God hears them in, th in the throne room. Um, secondly, you participate in the worship that is taking place before the throne room of God even now. Because the bowls that they hold symbolically contain the prayers of the saints, we're told, which have risen, as it were, before the throne of God and as such are, be, are, are lavished on God as part of the praise moment. So your prayers, as you choose to give time to it, are literally, not figuratively, literally content for the worship before the throne room of God. So you're worshiping through prayer before God in a more tangible way than you may have realized. And the song that they sing confirms a number of things. Christ's authority to take back the world, uh, that uh, the enemy is, is being, that, that he's purchasing, as it says, with his blood, many people from many nations from the enemy. Together they have become a kingdom of, and priests for God. Uh, the song alludes to where we're going in all of the events of tribulation and to the coming kingdom, and it reminds us of a couple of important things in passing. Number one, you're already citizens of a kingdom. If you have faith in Christ, you've got your passport. This is a unique kingdom. Normally, we set the boundaries of a kingdom, and we establish the place first, and then we try to get people there, or we try to recruit the people that are already there, or we just tell them, you're now part of a new kingdom. God does it the other way around. He gets all the people ready first, and only after all the people are ready, then he establishes the place and we all walk in together so that on day one, everyone is there together. 
If he had done it any other way, then people who were born earlier would have had more time in the kingdom than people who were born later. And that's not God's intention for this age. So we are part of this kingdom already, though we're waiting for it. And then secondly, we're priests. And if you've ever wondered how a believer is a priest, well, a priest is a simple concept. You're an intercessor. You're an intermediary. That's what a priest does. Represents God to man and man, man's needs back to God. Now, in this age, we don't need a human priest for the believer because we are priests ourselves. But who are we priests for then? The rest of the world. We are the intercessors for the world. We represent God to the world. We are priests to them. And we represent their needs back to God in the way that we might bring them to the knowledge of Christ through teaching or prayer or other means. So we are priests of that sort to the world. That is, if we serve him well, if we take advantage of it. All right, finally, you have that incredible moment of praise at the end. John looks up to see the throne room filled with an uncountable number of angels and all the rest, all worshiping the Lamb. And then notice the praise that comes rings out from everything in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea. By the way, that phrase, under the earth, is confirmation to us of things you see consistently in the Bible, which is that the location of hell is under our feet in the center of the earth. Not metaphorically, literally. If you drill down deep enough, you'd reach hell. So hell is under the earth, in the center of the earth. That's why scientists tell you it's really hot down there. That's why. And every living thing in this moment, no matter where they exist, even in the sea, are singing are praising God. That's, in, that's consistent with what Paul says in Philippians would one day happen. Every knee would bow, every tongue will confess. This is when it happens. Maybe not the only time, but this is the first time we know in the scripture in which it happens. So at the beginning of Daniel's 70th seven, the creation is put on notice and Jesus receives a moment of praise from all of them. I wonder what that's like for the unbeliever when it comes out of their mouth down here. And yet, obviously, those on earth who are praising Jesus are not universally converted. And those in hell, well, they're certainly not being saved by this confession. And it's because Jesus' worthiness to receive praise is about to become self-evident. And you're saved by your faith, not by statements that are self-evident. And once you're saying things that are self-evident, you're not making a profession of faith. What is seen is not faith. So in the next chapter, we get into the breaking of the seals, and with each one, you get this convulsive, convulsive response on the earth, and the end of the age begins to roll ahead, and John's going to witness all that, and it goes from chapter 6 all the way into 18, and then the return of Christ in 19. Now, chapter 6 can be a bit frustrating for, for students, primarily because it describes a lot of things in a very succinct, very short way, limited detail, and that leaves you with a lot of questions, usually, about the exact nature and the meaning of what's going on. Uh, and as we've seen in earlier parts of this study already, the reason that details aren't always available to us in the book of Revelation is because they're already in the Bible. They aren't there because they're earlier. And so you're seeing God show you the moment for something that was already predicted or, or described elsewhere in Scripture. So if you want to know the details, you've got to go back in time. So what we're going to do tonight is a little bit of homework that gets us into chapter 6 starting next week. And tonight we're going to begin with a brief overview uh, of a couple things. That is, who's affected by the events of chapters 6 through 18? Who's the audience? So let's go to Isaiah chapter 2 first. And Isaiah 2 says this, starting in verse 12. He says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. 
And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. Pausing there for a minute. It is poetic, but it is also literal. In the times that we're, we're gonna see described in the chapters coming, hills are made low, buildings are gonna fall, Islands are gonna sink. It's not just that he's saying, oh, strong things are gonna fail. You know, he's saying literally lofty mountains and hills are, are, are gonna be taken down. Uh, it's, it's a way of saying how comprehensive this abasing is. Nothing will stand up. No one and nothing will be seen as having any power of its own, much less pride or, you know, any kind of loftiness. Not just in human terms, he's gonna make the creation less lofty. This is a God who's going to make it abundantly clear who's God. Verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, and when he arises to make the earth tremble. And in that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? So there's a, clearly a time of terror, a time in which the earth goes through some very difficult times, trembling and all the rest, made so because of mankind's pride and arrogance and ungodliness. And notice at the end, verse 22, this is an interesting statement. God says he will stop regarding man. That is to say, stop allowing breath in his nostrils. Another way to put it is that it is a sign of God's forbearance and patience that the prideful, sinful, debased ungodliness of humanity keeps going on keeps having another day. Uh, you know, people think that because God's done nothing, he must not exist, or that he must not care. And what people don't understand is he'll do everything in his own timing. And you're just, you, you just wait, right? And at a point he says, stop regarding man, and he will not have breath in his nostrils anymore, for why should he be esteemed? This is the final reckoning for this age of mankind. And so this coming time of terror, first point tonight, this coming time of terror is for the whole earth because the whole earth deserves it. Frankly, we did, apart from God's grace, right? So there's no one on the earth who can stand and say, well, this, isn't, this is really harsh. I, sh- I shouldn't have to you know, experience this, and nor should we ever look at it and say, this isn't a God that loves because how could he do this? You don't understand things from God's point of view if you think that because you're, you're kind of narrowing your focus too much and you're thinking only of how you perceive good and bad or how you've perceived a very recent period of history in your own life or elsewhere. You haven't seen what God's seen for all history. Imagine what you would feel right now if I could show you all the sin that's taking place on the earth right now, just in this snapshot moment. All the terrible things that are happening to human beings worldwide right now. How would you, could you even absorb it? Right? Could it, would it even be, you'd, you'd be crushed by the thought of it. And God is constantly in that circumstance. I'm not saying he's crushed, but I'm saying that's what he knows for thousands of years. You, if you had that perspective, you would wonder why he hasn't done it already. Okay, so moving on, that's the first point. 
Now, we said this whole terror comes on the, or this terror comes on the whole of the earth. Paul made that point. Here you see Isaiah saying why. But we've also said it is stipulated specifically for Israel because of the old covenant. So that's where we go next. A passage you, you'll remember a little about. We read a piece of it before. Jeremiah 30, verse four says this. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Well, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all their faces turned pale? Oh, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, and he will, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and the strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So this is a a good short overview of the nature of the tribulation concerning its focus. Its focus is Israel. That is, it's a time for Israel and for Judah, and it's so bad, I love this little passage because it kind of uses this great comparison. He says, it's so bad it's gonna cause men to writhe in pain as if they're giving birth. I think ladies appreciate that because it just goes to show men couldn't take it either. Or they couldn't take it, period, you can take it. But the point is, it's a unique day. There is none like it. Ultimately, though, it's a time for Jacob or Israel's troubles, Israel's distress or affliction. God is inflicting on Israel something that is specifically intended for them, though it impacts the whole earth, and the whole earth is deserving of it. And Jeremiah says, though, in verse 7, nonetheless, in the end, the nation, Israel, will be saved out of it. And the saving here is a little different than you might assume. We're Christianese always interferes at this point. We think every time you hear the word save, it means salvation. That's not the way, there are other versions of the word. There's other purposes of the word. Here's one of those other purposes. Yes, there will be Jews saved in the time of tribulation. That's true. But this is speaking about a nation coming out of it, being preserved so that they they aren't destroyed by it. So they, they come out of it. They're saved out of it. All right, now from these two passages, we we see this pattern emerging. God, first of all, promising a terrible worldwide calamity. I mean, these are Old Testament passages, so here again, if you were to be tempted to look at the book of Revelation as entirely metaphoric and spiritual and not literal, you would have still these passages to contend with, right, and many others like them that tell us that there is a literal destruction coming. Um, Number two, it affects the whole world, not just Israel. But number three, it is for Israel that, in other words, if Israel didn't exist, this wouldn't happen. And yet Israel themselves as a nation will be saved out of it. Knowing all of this now, in addition to what we saw last week, you have even more reason to understand why Paul says to the church, we are not appointed to experience this wrath. What he means is, there are some who are appointed to experience this wrath, you're just not them. Who are they? Well, it is Jews, and we have to be more specific, unbelieving Jews. Because clearly, a believing Jew in this age, prior to these events, would be part of the church, and as such, they are also not appointed. But how is it that they can escape the penalty appointed to Israel by having become part of the church? Isn't that sort of breaking the rules? Well, there's a reason we can explain that. Unbelieving Jews are still bound to the law. But by faith in Christ, you are no longer under the law. You're no longer bound to the law. 
And it is Israel's law that requires these penalties. So to, make, to build that out a little more fully for the rest of tonight, let me go to the law for a short time and walk you through a couple of passages that explain why it is that in the law, Israel is bound to receive these penalties. It starts in Deuteronomy 29. I'm not gonna have the time tonight to give you as much history as I might like, uh, but you probably have some coming in and we can work it out. In the law, the fifth book of the law, Deuteronomy, you have its, Deuteronomy means the second law because it's the second time Israel received it. That is a new generation coming out of 40 years of wandering. Now here's the law again, their earlier generation having heard it and disobeyed it. So God, through Moses, says this. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you and he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. So this is the moment. They're standing on the brink of walking into the promised land after 40 years. They spent those 40 years outside the land because their fathers disobeyed the Lord, testing him 10 times, and then he set them outside the land to die. But now you have a future generation, a new one, ready to enter. But to make sure this generation understands the law, Moses takes time in Deuteronomy to repeat the whole law to this new generation. And at the end, he asked this new generation to agree to it, just as the earlier generation had done so. And if you notice here in verse 10, he says, even as this generation stands here in this moment, they represent a nation, even all the men of Israel. So in effect, the entire nation of Israel was standing before God in that moment. And in verses 14 and 15, he goes further and he says, the terms of this covenant will not only apply to those who are standing here today making an agreement with God, but they will also stand for all future generations. That is, even Jews who were not born yet at that moment were being bound by this covenant as these people agreed to it. And so literally, every single Jew who has ever been born into the nation subsequent to this date has been bound to the old covenant because of this moment. We could say it this way, it's not an individual covenant, it's a national covenant, or you could say a multi-generational covenant, so that every Jew born after this day is bound to keep this covenant, all its terms apply, even if they never personally agreed to it. Much as a new child born in the United States is bound to the laws of this nation, even though they never stood there and signed the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Right? So in this law now that every living Jew ever after has been bound to, there are promises, promises of blessing by God to the people and demands of obedience of the people to the law and promises for judgment if they disobey the law, including in Leviticus 26 this. Now I mentioned this chapter earlier, remember? 
Look at Leviticus 26, chapter one, he says, or verse one, he says, you shall not make for yourselves idols, nor set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. And if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, well then, I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and trees of the field will uh, bear their fruit. And it goes on from there. And the Lord says, do what, I'm going to summarize this, do what you're told, keep the law, and then like in any contract context, you know, it's not a contract, but think of it like that for a moment, you know, there's duties on either side, and there's agreements to be, to be made, and, and, and expectations, and he says, if you do these things, I will bless you, and in verses 4 all the way through verse 13 of that chapter, if you read it, it's just one blessing after another, all right? A list of national blessings. And they would live in peace, they would have the best of the land, they would have great harvest, enemies would be vanquished, they'd live in perfect security. In other words, it's a description of the kingdom. But there are also penalties if they fail to do their part. And if you read further in that chapter, you get to the end of the blessings and then you find this. If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, And if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you. Sound familiar? And you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. And the description that follows from there concerning what we could call the curses or the judgments, it goes on through verse 39. In fact, there are twice as many verses devoted to the penalties as there are to the blessings. That's not to suggest that God's penalties are worse than his blessings are good. I'm just saying it's serious. And here again, this is a national covenant. What that means is this, these penalties come as a result of a national response and they then affect the nation as a whole. So for example, if one Israelite Israelite fails to keep even one commandment of the law, even just one time, then the entire nation will receive all the curses. It's an all or nothing national covenant. And there are some interesting curses in this list which include things like God allowing Israel's enemies to rule over them, age of the Gentiles, uh, scattering them among the nations, age of the Gentiles, many of Israel perishing in those nations so that the nation becomes a a small number in the world, current day, for the most part has been. Uh, He'll lay waste to their cities, he'll bring seven plagues, he'll bring pestilence, he'll bring famine. I mean, it's just going on and on and on. And these things come unless Israel keeps the law perfectly for all generations to a man. Now, what are the odds they were going to meet the terms of that covenant? They didn't meet them while Moses was still on the mountain, much less after that, right? So it it was obviously impossible for them to keep it. But here's the thing. They agreed to it. This is not one of those covenants in which God forced their hand. This is a parody covenant. There's suzerainty and there's parity, and a parity covenant is one in which two parties make an agreement together out of their own volition. And that's how God positioned it. Will you do these things? In fact, he asked him a couple times because I think he was sort of wondering, are you reading this? You might want to read this. 
As Paul says, you who do the law, do you not read the law? Right? This is part of the law. You want to be under the law? You can have it. So how can, an ever, how can every Jew in Israel ever perfectly comply with the entire law? It, it's impossible in their own power, and so it's obvious that they were destined from the very beginning to experience the curses. That was intentional. And since these things are the word of God and God himself is a party to the agreement, the curses must take place. There is no option. Remember, that's the difference between law and grace. Grace gives room for forgiveness. Law has no grace. So as you go down the list in chapter 26, what you find is that many of the things that are, are said to be you know, the result of disobedience have already happened. I mean, they're being set outside the land, things like that. But you will also find things in this list that have yet to happen. And those are the things that come in the time of tribulation. So if these curses must happen to Israel, God's word said they will. And yet some have yet to happen. Well, then that tells us there's still more to come, which is, of course, what we're waiting for, which is what Revelation explains. And we need to understand the events of tribulation from this point of view. That is, they are not random chaos. They are not some God unchained in his anger and just determined to make life miserable. These are specific. These are called out in prior scripture as part of an agreement that Israel itself said yes to, which bound all future generations to have to experience. And it still raises the question, of course, though, of why. You know, it's, it's a covenant made with a nation, not with an individual. And so that means whatever happens, good or bad, affects the whole. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar rode into town, good people like Daniel and Ezekiel got hold of Babylon too. It's a national covenant. They didn't keep the law as a nation. They all suffered the penalty together. But how does the law come? How does, how does God begin to rectify this problem for Israel? How does he ever get them out of the conditions they're in? I mean, if they are bound to these penalties because of their failure to keep the old covenant, which they can't keep, how does he ever break that cycle? How do they ever move to a place where they can receive the blessings of that same covenant? Well, we already covered one of those examples that in faith, as you come to faith, you move out from under the law because in faith you are credited with the work of Christ under the law, such that his performance under the law becomes your performance in God's eyes. Well, Christ did keep the law perfectly, and so he deserves the blessings and none of the curses, and yet he went the step further, taking our curse, which we deserve. So Paul says in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Now you understand what he means by that. If you're committed to do the works of the law, you fall under the Leviticus 26 curses, among others. Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Remember, all things. You can't do even one thing wrong or the curses come. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Toby quoted that this weekend. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. It's a choice. You either do law or you depend on Christ doing it for you. That's faith. Do it or depend on his doing it. You can't mix them. So Christ redeemed us, Paul says, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So for the Jews of our age who believe in Jesus, they become part of the church. They're therefore saved from the wrath to come and no longer do the penalties of the law. But what about the Jews of tribulation? How are they going to escape? Why doesn't tribulation last forever, given that their sin never stops, they never do the covenant, right? Well, 
We read the answer earlier in Jeremiah when he said that the time of Jacob's troubles eventually results in Israel being saved out of it. How does that happen? Well, with the last bit of tonight, let's just look once more at Leviticus 26. And it says this. In verse 40, at the end of the curses, God says this. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Jacob as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up its Sabbath while it made desolate without them, and they meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them, abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. I'm going to stop there. So, here's what the Lord's saying. At the end of that curse a list of curses, which we just said they can never get out from under because they can never keep the law. He says, okay, I see the problem. Let me give you a loophole. And here's the loophole. He says that even though the nation is disobeying the terms of the old covenant, there is still an option for them to be restored and to receive the blessings of the kingdom. But first, they must confess the iniquity, their own, in that regard, their own iniquity, and he says the iniquity of their forefathers. And then he gives them another option, if you notice, in verse 41, he says, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity. So there's two ways in which the nation of Israel, or a Jew particularly, could get himself out from under the penalties of the old covenant so as to enjoy the promised blessings of the kingdom. The second of those two is what we already discussed, faith in Christ, which is referenced here as an uncircumcised heart becoming humbled and in so doing, making amends for their iniquity. That's an Old Testament way of saying, by faith. But what about that first one? That first one says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers. Now, we know that's not speaking about personal salvation. How do we know that? Because that's not the formula. You're not called upon to confess your sin and your father's sin in order to get saved. So there's something unique going on here. The second of the two I showed you is the personal salvation option, You can take that option now if you're a Jew and you escape the penalties of the law. You can believe during the time of the tribulation. We're gonna see that happen in chapter seven. That takes you out from the wrath. But if you're not either of those, there's still another option God gives the nation of Israel. And it involves the people of, of God, Israel, coming to some recognition of their own sin and of a prior sin of their forefathers when they acted in hostility against God. Now that's a bit of an inscrutable reference at this stage of our study, and I'm gonna leave it as such for now because it actually becomes a, a more central part of our study closer to chapter 19. So we leave it aside for now. What I want you to understand right now is that the law has a provision in which God says to Israel, You can receive the blessings that I've said are coming for you, the blessings that are outlined in the Old Covenant even, and do so without keeping the law yourself. It's by faith again, and in the case of the nation, there is a specific thing they can do as a nation which will bring the whole nation into a new place, which we'll talk about later. This is what Paul means. If you've ever read Galatians 3 and wondered what he meant, you now have all the pieces you need to understand Galatians 3 when Paul says, 
that the Old Covenant is a tutor to drive us to Christ. Paul says this in Galatians 3.19. He says, why the law then? It was added, meaning it was a new covenant given, an additional covenant given to Israel in addition to the one that they already had through Abraham. It was added in that sense because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, the seed is Christ. We know Paul tells us that in this letter. The seed is Christ. When it says to whom the promise has been made, the seed would come, the question becomes which coming? For Israel, this is the second coming. For us, it's at his first appearing because by faith you enter in. Remember, there's two ways. By your own humbled heart being circumcised, that's, a, that's, that's accepting the seed, so to speak, now. But what about for those Jews who never come to faith in Jesus all the way to the very end of the age, to the very end, to the last day of Daniel's 70th sevens, what about that Israel? Well, for them, at the coming of the seed, they then will know something that they don't know today. That's where we're ending up. That's where we'll go in, in chapters to come. But back to this. Paul says in verse 21 then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, no, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. There's no option for Israel to get the blessings of the covenant by doing the law. It's hopeless, right? But before faith came, he says, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, here's the interesting part, and here's where it all comes together. The covenant, the old covenant, is a national covenant. It does not work piecemeal. It never works one person alone. What is true concerning Israel in the old covenant is true for the nation always. So this loophole requires that the entire nation would participate in this confession moment. If they make a personal confession of faith, they come out from under the covenant. Now they're no longer bound to it. Now it doesn't have to affect them. But as long as they remain in that covenant by not having faith, then whatever comes for the nation comes for them. And at the very end, the loophole number one, the first option in the loophole said that nation must do two things if they want to leave the penalties of the old covenant. They must know their own sins under the covenant, recognize their own sins, and a specific set of things that their forefathers did in some past day in which they had hostility for God. Very unique moment, very unique thing they must confess. And in that special provision, God says, I will then do something for you. He says, I will then consider the covenant I have with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is, I will remember that covenant and confirm its terms. By remember, we do not mean that he suddenly comes to think of it again, it means he will fulfill it or complete it in that moment. So the old covenant sets the timing for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in that respect. And now you understand that tribulation, as part of Daniel 77s, is the last piece in a plan that God enacted which has its effect of bringing an end to the old covenant, fulfilling it, so to speak, so that Israel can then move into the blessings that follow it. And the tribulation is the culmination of that work, the final fulfillment of the curses, the the means by which God saves Israel, moving them to this confession moment, moving them to a place where they're ready to do the thing he said they have to do as a nation so that they can receive the things he's promised them. And he set all of this in place so that when Jesus came to them the first time, 
he could rightly set his own people aside in favor of Gentiles without having been accused of turning his back on his own people or on his own promises because, remember, at the time of Jesus' first coming, how many of Daniel's 70 weeks still needed to be completed? Remember the timing of Daniel 9? At the coming of the cutting off of the Messiah, you've gone through how many of the 77s? 69. You could not give Israel their Messiah at that time of history. They still had seven years of curses waiting. So that comes because of an old covenant which then stipulated the requirement thereof and it was put in place with those requirements so that in the coming of Christ there'd be just cause on God's part for setting his own people aside in that first coming. Then he pauses the clock only to start it up again and use it to the effect of bringing Israel back to himself at the end of the age. That's why Paul says in Romans 11 that it's a, it's a wonder what God does that he shuts up all under sin so that he can show mercy to all, Gentiles and Jews, in this pattern of God. All right, so why do we do all of that besides the fact that you might find it interesting, I hope? Because now, as you think about the events of tribulation, you need to think of them in terms of their purpose, not just their destructive power. They're working to move a nation of people to a place ultimately of redemption, not without collateral damage, of course, but all to God's glory in the end. Right? That's why tribulation exists. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, a lot of teaching, Lord. There's so much in your book we could talk all, all of history and not complete it all. And it's uh, always a temptation to just keep going. But I do pray, Father, that the minds who received tonight were not overfilled but were satisfied. I pray that the understanding is complete so that we would understand that you have so much wisdom and power beyond our imagination. And as such, Father, we can rely on you in all matters of our life. And know the future is in your hands and look forward to it with an expectation that a good God will do good things. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.